This is a Federal News Network podcast. No one knows what the F-35 aircraft can do in a war, say, over Taiwan. One thing we do know, the fifth-generation fighter, now something like 20 years in development, has economic significance, like $72 billion a year spread throughout the economy across the United States. Joining the Federal Drive with details, the Managing Director of Aerodynamic Advisory, Kevin Michaels, spoke to Federal Drive host Tom Temin. Your firm, which advises aerospace companies, undertook this study. What was your goal here in looking at the economic impact of this plane? The goal was really to understand what the F-35 program means holistically to the U.S. economy. And it is holistic in the sense that it includes not only all the activity that goes into making F-35s, but also all the activity related to sustaining F-35s as it relates to training, maintenance, logistics, and the like. I mean, in some sense, it's fair to say that the plane takes a lot of maintenance and life cycle cost other than building. And so some of the weaknesses of the program, you could say, are the economic strengths of the financial end of it. Or am I overinterpreting here? <laughs> I don't know. You know, the U.S. economy is in the aerospace industry have gone together so closely over the years. I mean, it is the number one export industry historically, you know, of manufactured goods in the U.S. It's where we have an undisputed advantage. And the F-35 program has meant a lot to this industry at a time when it's no secret that Boeing in the Pacific Northwest has been going through unprecedented difficulty, not only related to the MAX uh, situation, but also the COVID crisis. Right. They just reported bad results the other day because now that they're past the max situation, apparently now they've got supply chain issues and they have some issues in their military business, too. Absolutely. It's hard to find a program at Boeing that has run on schedule and on budget. So it's a very difficult times on both civil and military. But in contrast to that, you know, while we're going through these difficulties, you know, military production has been robust and the F-35 program, especially so, uh, in light of the new geopolitical circumstances we find ourselves in now. And it has been exported to quite a number of allies, even though it's not fully operational in the U.S. armed services. It's not totally doing what they want it to do, but it's sort of semi-engaged. But it is also engaged around the world, right? It is. And, uh, you know, as a fifth-generation fighter, the world's most capable fighter, Uh, Suddenly now, in light of what's happening in Russia-Ukraine and the geopolitical tensions in the South China Sea, suddenly everyone wants to get their hands on this. And we've had a number of significant procurements, you know, in recent months and significant increases in defense budgets uh, outside of the U.S., headlined by Germany. Sure. And do you think that the Pentagon has done the best? I mean, the troubles with the program have been well-documented. But have they done a good enough job, do you think, of selling the benefits of the program, both militarily and economically? I guess it's not their role to sell it economically, but militarily. Militarily, yeah, it's. uh, I think it's pretty well known where it stacks up in the pecking order around the world for those people that study fighters closely. And it is in its own swim lane right now. All right. And by the way, let's get to the issue here. What is the economic Mm -hmm. impact of it, say, per year or in total? So the headline number is that the F-35, the economic impact on the U.S. economy, is $72 billion a year. It's 
very, very large number. And let me unpack that a little bit, what we mean by economic impact. We can separate economic impact into what we call direct and indirect. So direct are the people directly employed in the program, whether they're in the final assembly or making parts or components that go into it, or they're a maintainer. That's the direct side of the equation, and we estimate that to be about $34 billion. There's also an indirect economic impact. That is, it's the money that employees that are paid by the program go out and spend in the community and their homes and at restaurants and on goods and services, and that's the second element. The direct economic impact is uh, $34 billion by our estimate, and the indirect is about $38 billion, so the net is 72 We're speaking with Kevin Michaels, Managing Director of Aerodynamic Advisory. Do you have a figure, a rough figure, on the number of individuals, jobs employed that are connected to this program? I guess it's hard to count because people may work on more than one thing. It is. It's tens of thousands, and it wasn't our charter um, to estimate the employment on this. Why is the number so large? If you just look at the value of the F-35 deliveries by themselves in the last year, I think it's on the order of about 13 to 14 billion dollars. So then the question is, well, how do you get to 72? But for every F-35 that comes off the assembly line, there is a multi-tier supply chain. You have big system suppliers, people that supply structures to the aircraft, people like Northrop Grumman that do that, you know, people like Pratt & Whitney that make the engines. But then these companies, in turn, spend a lot of money with their suppliers, which we call Tier 2 suppliers. You're going down. And these are smaller shops, typically. And then this whole act continues where the Tier 2s spend money with smaller suppliers, which we call Tier 3s. So when you work your way through the tiers, the $14 billion, roughly, of deliveries, it adds up to about $30 billion of total manufacturing activity. And then you throw in the people turning wrenches and so forth to support the program. Very big in places like Oklahoma and Utah, uh, where there are major F-35 bases. And that adds another $4 billion to all of this. And it's probably fair to say that there is a lot of really cutting-edge, I hate that phrase, but advanced manufacturing connected with this. This is not just putting a DC-3 together with rivets and, and aluminum. <laughs> Absolutely. It's cutting-edge manufacturing. Some of the production facilities have been lauded as being some of the best-in-class production facilities in the U.S. ecosystem. And, of course, capable fighters like this are really flying computers. You have armies of software programmers, you know, the most advanced defense electronics, all backing this. So, yes, it is very high-end. And to whom was this report intended? Congress, mainly, or what? Yeah, I think the report was intended, I think, to a broad set of stakeholders. And clearly, you know, I can't speak on behalf of clients' intentions, but I would say that it's meant to inform the decision makers uh, as it relates to policy. I think it's related to government officials that, you know, have to make decisions about how to support the program and its relevance to their community or whatever public policies they choose to enact. And clearly, it's also aimed at the supplier community, you know, that has come through such a difficult period of time with these crises that we alluded to earlier. Sure. Was Lockheed Martin your client, by the way? Yes. Fair enough. And what else do we need to know about this program? Its reach is in, I believe, it's 48 states. Right. Um, so it's, it's spread across the country. 
and it is a major export earner for us as well. And it is, I think, next to the 737 program, which the whole public now is well aware of what it is, I think this could be the next biggest program of all programs out there today in the world of aerospace, which is so important to us. Kevin Michaels is Managing Director of Aerodynamic Advisory. Speaking there with Federal Drive host Tom Temin, we'll post this interview along with a link to the report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive-in-residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took pr- um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. <laughs> sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. 
Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. 
And we left the meeting and we were walking back to the office and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now. Now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so, well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. 
Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. 